Hi, heathens. Hi, friends. Hey, everyone. We're doing well. It's another episode of the Unholy Trinity, so of course it's good. We are ready. Gospel stay for the gossip, and boy, do we have a topic for y'all today. This is going to be your content warning. We're going to go out right from the front and say we are discussing homosexuality in the Bible with a narrowed focus today, but with that comes a lot of discussion around, well, sex and maybe some anatomy, and who knows what we're going to drop in in terms of an occasional cuss word. So if you have children who aren't ready to be exposed to that conversation just yet, now is your time to uh, skip ahead and listen to this later. But that but being honestly, said... <laughs> do your kids ever listen in on this when I'm talking? They just skip past your parts only. Yeah, they're like, don't listen. <laughs> I'm joking. So, ex ex what are we talking about? What are we talking about today? I know I just touched on it, but let's go more into depth. What we're talking about today, first and foremost, we need to know what we're not talking about. We are not having arguments about whether or not any of you who are part of the LGBTQ plus community are valid. That's not up for debate for any of us. We don't think it should be up for debate for anyone. Who you love is not up for debate. How you identify is not up for debate. Your marriage is not up for debate. Your position inside or outside of the church, inside or outside of faith, is in no way up for debate. You are valid, as valid as in, as every person that's part of this conversation. What we are going to do, though, is talk about this text that has had such a big influence on the sexuality of the world, which is the Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, and the Christian Scriptures from the New Testament. Now... We should also make it clear that even if you hear these episodes we talk about and have come to the conclusion the Bible does in fact condemn homosexuality, we're comfortable saying that the Bible's wrong. That's not a problem for us. It, it is incorrect in any possible ass assessment that you are not valid. Now what's interesting and fun is because we believe that we have a certain kind of unique integrity to approach this text because we don't need it to say a certain thing. We're okay with it being wrong. And since we're okay with it being wrong, we're okay with just saying flat out, this is probably what's happening here without an agenda outside of that. So hopefully you'll enjoy that. And hopefully you'll learn. Yay! And hopefully you'll convert to being gay because this is the gay agenda. It is. I've been trying to convert for so long. Like, we're I working don't know what on else it. I need to do. Like, you need to pray to Jesus more. I did not get my letter in the mail from Hogwarts. I just pictured gay Hogwarts. And it's it just, would be fabulous. It's such a good place. I'm moving there ASAP. As soon as I get my letter. All right, so how are we going to approach this topic today? So, we are going to cover two texts today. Um, you, If you are interested in this topic, you've probably heard other people, podcasts, YouTube channels talk about this, and you hear about the clobber passages, perhaps, the six or seven verses that really tackle this conversation in one way or another in a conservative Christian worldview. We're not going to approach it that way. What we're going to do is we're going to narrow it down to two texts that most scholars would say are probably the most consistent arguments for where we find a sexual ethic that condemns homosexuality. We're starting there. That's Leviticus 18 and Romans 1. Um, we're going to be in those texts because we believe that, that that is, well, I mean, scholars in general believe that is where you can find the foundation of the sexual ethic that does not affirm homosexuality, if there is one. 
And it's important to say this is actually going to be a two-part episode. So we next episode that's posted, if you do want to focus more on the other five verses that are used against sexuality or operated within an evangelical space to say that gay equals bad, come back for that because we'll be addressing ways to discuss that with other people, to be able to support your arguments. And I know it's the bad word in some spaces, but kind of like an apologetics lens of why that's not necessarily true. So we'll have one deep dive today, and then we'll have a more rounded approach next week. We're just going to talk to you about these texts, where they come from, and what they mean. So without further ado, let's jump into Leviticus 18.22. Let's do it. Who's got their Bible? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. That was just just so good. That guttural, I think that was going to come out of you, whether you wanted it to or not. All right. Um, Leviticus 18.22, if you don't have Leviticus memorized for whatever reason, uh, this text is the one where you've heard it say, a man shall not lie with a man the way a man lies with a woman, for it is an abomination. Boring. For it is boring? Yeah. For it is boring. When men lay with men, they're doing it better than when they lay with women. That's true. (laughs) Anyway, sorry, bad joke. They're familiar with the equipment. Uh, Yeah, apparently. Let's take it away. Andrew, uh, I say let's take it away, and then I'm like, but you specifically. You want to give us some historical context on when this verse was being written and perhaps why? Yeah, so not just for Leviticus, but really for the vast majority of what we have is the Bible, um, or the Hebrew Bible, the, you know, the Jewish people call it the Tanakh. This text um, is part of the Pentateuch. It's for, uh, part of the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Torah. Most of that was written in the 6th century. Most of it. Between 580 and 530 BCE. So right after Babylonian exile. Well, yeah, like right right in it at the end of it. Yeah. Well, at the end of it and then through it. Because they, the first group of uh, Jewish folks went back to Jerusalem in like 586 or something? Right. We have... So the, the the empires that we see having influences, you know, we have the the three big spaces of time that we find existing within the Hebrew scriptures are the pre-exilic period, the exilic period, and the post-exilic period. Basically, the single most important historical event that shaped how all the Hebrew Bible was written was Babylon uh, attacking the Jewish people or the the Israelites. Uh, we see, and then after that, the Persians coming in and taking. Uh, over Babylonian territory, specifically the Jewish people, which gave them uh, the ability to go back to their homeland. That's why you see, if you're very familiar with the Bible, the Persians spoken about in a pretty favorable way, but the Babylonians talked about in a really terrible way. Well, the Babylonians put Israel into exile, but then when, like you said, when the Persians won out and it was King Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, I believe, um, that then sent the first group of Jews back to the homeland yep. and actually encouraged them to rebuild Jerusalem. Yeah. And Israel after that actually was had a fair level of autonomy mm-hmm. all the way through until the Seleucid Empire then uh, came in and took over. And we see um, Antiochus trying to Hellenize the Jewish people to the detriment of their own beliefs. But anyway... That's neither here nor there, just some historical context for folks. No, but that's super important because if with what you just said there, um, the autonomy from Persia is, is a really good parallel to this 
awful situation they have in Babylon because in Babylon we find uh, the Jews taken from their homeland. You find their temple temple destroyed. The temple was so important in the first century or for, for first temple Judaism because um, that's where they would encounter God. Um, this is, in the greatest sense, the ability to take away someone's freedom of religion. It, they had their temple destroyed. They had their people taken away. They had their relatives killed. They were taken from their homeland. They were required to speak a foreign language. They were given new names. If you read the story of Daniel, that's pretty interesting because you see the Babylonian names, and then you see their Jewish names as well. And that's an interesting parallel that you find taking place in that text. So this stuff, a lot of this stuff was written in response to Babylonian exile, Babylonian exile being this thing that they thought was going to kill themselves off. And so they started writing down their stories. And that's when they told the story of, of Genesis. Uh, that's when they told the story of Exodus. And that's where, where they told the story of Leviticus, the book we're in right now. Also, sorry, uh, the Jews went back to Jerusalem in 538 BCE, before anybody comes for me. Yeah, after, <laughs> after Babylonian exile. The Babylonian exile was like 580 to 530. It was a good year, I remember it well. I have a wine cellar <laughs> that's just fully stocked with the nice terracotta of 530. Uh, <laughs> and specifically within context of Leviticus, I think it's probably important for people to know what it is in terms of the Bible being different kinds of writings and having different purposes. Leviticus is a book of laws for the Levites. Yep. So, starting there. Right. So, and, and within a very specific time period, the beginning of Leviticus says, this is how you basically be your own people, the people of God, on your way out of Exodus, or on your way out of Egypt, and going into the land of Canaan. So, as they're exiting one foreign land and entering another foreign land, and while they're in this, like, middle period, this is how you be the people I want you to be. Okay, at the risk of getting a little bit off topic, we can redirect. The coming out of Egypt is a pretty hotly contested notion. Mm -hmm. um, like, were they really coming out of Egypt in the way that the Bible says? Most scholars agree no. Right. Right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, and so from there I've also heard, and this I don't know as much about, uh, but I was reading, God, I can't remember his name, but a really well-known Old Testament scholar, and he was saying that a lot of these books, like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, were written sort of looking backwards. Well, yeah, so like, so what's really interesting about these texts is, and from what we know about like Yahwism, and Yahwism is basically the belief in Yahweh that predates any of these writings of the Israelites. They, from best we can tell, Yahweh as a deity comes out, it comes from outside of the Canaanite region and enters the Canaanite region, either from way up north or way down south. And we have no clue how old this deity is in reference to human right. history. So what is, and now what's interesting is when Yah, the Yahwists, whether they be the Shasu nomads or another people we don't even know the name of, entered into the Canaanite region, the ruling empire over the Canaanite region was Egypt. And so what is most likely happening here is they're hearkening back to like this narrative reality of entering into this land that is overseen by the greatest of great powers being Egypt and uh, telling actually the legitimacy of their story of being in exile with Babylon through this archetypal villain that they're that well, they're making great Egypt. power that they knew yeah it's it's, like a, it's a way to say like we've overcome this once we can do it again that's exactly uh, it and provides hope but i think i think as a, a 21st century sort of huge population and melting pot of cultures 
not all of us can really wrap our brain around the fact that entire people groups then could have just been wiped out fairly easily. And so in order to continue on and carry on your bloodline, there was a sort of not a moral judgment on whether or not sex with A, B, or C, or this kind of sex is bad, but more of a practical argument of like, we need to keep our bloodlines going, we need to keep mm -hmm. our people alive, and in order to do that, we need to encourage these types of unions. Otherwise, we're not going to have kids, our population is going to die out, and that's it. Yeah, which is pretty much the entire focus of the early Bible, you know, go forth and multiply, and don't spill your seed, and make sure to just keep it in your pants unless you're going to be procreating. And the, right. the whole focus of just trying to, it sounds so, you know, epigenetic, but it's, it's more a survivalist thing, just because, as you said, their numbers were so far and few between, and they had all these different culture wars and clashes that were always, unfortunately, happening to the Jewish people and continues for the rest of history where they've been put on the brink of extinction and i'd argue almost that if the bible were to be written today we'd see a very different message come across and it would much more be like you need to stop procreating like can you can you just not have sex anymore uh, <laughs> because we're just kind of built to the limit yeah no that's exactly that's exactly it. It's and this is probably a good point, a good part to, to address before we really get into like the nitty gritty of the text. Here is we encourage you if you're listening to like it, it is easy to read this from your position in the 21st century in an air conditioning room, sitting in your armchair, and go how how dare people think that this is moral? I encourage you to think about this instead as the, from the perspective of like Syrian refugees trying to survive or the perspective of people that are, are in a, um, whether it be the Japanese internment camps that we had in the States, or the internment camps that we found um, overseas uh, in various wars. Uh, so this is not a text from uh, that is to be debated philosophically, but to be understood historically. And so let's start off by understanding it historically, and then next week we'll debate it philosophically, because that's where we are right now. I have a little sign on my door that has a red, a red cardboard paper and green, and if it's green, she thinks she's allowed to enter the room, and it flips sometimes very easily. And, she, and so she came in to let me know that I have to flip it to let her know that she did, can't come in, which is precious. <laughs> but that's what just happened. So, so rolling in to Leviticus. I'm just going to go, and yeah. we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of some Hebrew today. So this text, which we have interpreted to say, a man shall not lie with a man the way a man lies with a woman, for it is an abomination, is um, interesting way to write that in English. The Hebrew is Va'et Zahar Lo Tishkev Mishkave Isha Toeva Hi. Totally. So Va'et Zahar so the first man that you find in some translations isn't in the verse. A man shall not lie with a man the first man isn't in this verse at all. A, a, probably a more plain reading would be, you shall not lie with a man the way a man lies with a woman. Like, that would be closer, but even still, it's taking a lot of liberties. Because Zahar... So it's more imperative? Like, if I was going to say, like, clean your room, and I'm talking to you, that obviously means you go clean your room. Exactly. And also, every single one of these verses in Leviticus 18 is presenting a sexuality exclusively for men. Like, it's like... Hey, here's what you do not do with your penis. All of these are what not to do with a penis. All of them. Oh, I could add something. No. 
You could add some. <laughs> so you guys may have heard arguments around the word Zahar. If you've been on TikTok, you've seen arguments around Zahar. Zahar is an interesting word because it just means male. It does not mean adult man. It is a ageless term. It is a term void of species, and it is a term void of class. To give you a couple examples, the animals that go two by two, the males in that verse for Noah's Ark, the word used there is Zahar. When Abraham is circumcises a bunch of dudes of various ages, all of them are called Zahar. Which means the children, the male children are called Zahar, and the adult male slaves are called Zahar. So not, not the status of like a man the way he is, or not the age of a man the way he is. And, and male animals are the same way. Which is what I would kind of call like my intro to this verse in terms of like reframing it in my mind, or at least early in my deconstruction process of understanding that clear difference because it kind of always been taught, obviously, as a man should not lie with a man. And it's something I never questioned, but that's a really good look into, you know, the language being important here and word usage being sometimes more in depth than, you know, pastors would want you to think. But even if it doesn't have a lot of credence to lend to the fact that they meant young men, it still shows that the verse has more to it that should be investigated and not taken just as face English because uh, well, very well, one, story. English is incredibly lazy. When things are translated, we have a lot less. You know, it's like, I don't know, I, I just sound so cliche, but there's that, you know, phrase people have always said, like, oh, in, I forget what it is, Inuit or something, there is all of these words for love. Um, and then in English, it's just love, right? But, like, you have to then investigate the context and the culture going on around it to see what it would really mean. But I have, I am curious, would age have played a role in Jewish society at that time with whether or not it mattered? Would, I guess age or status, would it have mattered if a man was sleeping with whatever, anybody outside of a woman for procreative purposes? I think this is one of the spaces where we can give a little credence to an argument in this text that conservatives use. Like, that, they'll push back and say, this doesn't say boy. And, like, they are technically right. This doesn't say boy. This says male. And, and, a, and but a, also that word wouldn't have required, or like, it wouldn't have required an explainer because it's just saying male across the board, not, like, boys. Exactly. Exactly. It is probably, if there is an argument to be had to say this isn't about homosexuality, the argument around Zahar, although it was a really good gateway into the conversation, is probably the one that holds the least water because it just... Uh, now, the interpretive tradition around that later, there's actually a lot of interesting arguments. But in the verse it, by itself, that's probably the weakest argument. The other spots in the verse are probably a whole lot stronger. And we get there pretty quickly. So, va'et zahar, lo, which just means no or not. Lo means no or not. Uh, tishkev or tishkav means lie down. Now, this is interesting. Lie down or to lie from tishkev is in its own sexual. It's sexual on its own. And yet, mishkave also means to lie down. They use two different words right there, back to back, 
to suggest the lying down, which can mean sexual. That, what else would it mean? You said it could mean. What else could it mean? To, to rest is, is another one. Okay. Um, so tishkav, we find that used in sexual ways. Mishkave, in all of its different forms, is used in sexual ways. But we only find this use of mishkave used this way one other time in the entire Hebrew Bible. And the Hebrew Bible doesn't exactly have a lot of variety in language. Like, finding a word that's used once or twice is extremely rare. And this term is so rare that the only other reference that we can find for it being used this way is from a text in Genesis. And it is not translated the way we translate it in this verse. It is not interpreted the same way. Can we expand upon that, actually? Is this talking about Genesis 49.4? Yeah, the story uh, around Reuben. So For Reuben, okay. Mishkave Isha means... So, so the way that we translate it in English or interpret it in English is to say the way you lie with a woman. Um, like, you shall not lie with a male. You should not have sexual relations with a male the way you do with a woman. That's how we've mm-hmm. interpreted it. Now, that kind of interpretation does not work in the other place that we use it. Like, right. in the other... Verse, Which is really interesting, and I think has a lot, you know, a lot going so on how here. how do we use it in the other instance, and how can maybe that inform how we understand this verse? That's so what, I'm looking at a new I'm interpretation so of Leviticus right now. <laughs> I'm so happy. This is so weird. This paper by John Jostein writes pointing out that the other usage says, to take an important cue from Genesis 49.4, it points to a different understanding. As Reuben lay on his father's bed, having intercourse with his father's concubine, so the man addressed in Leviticus 18.22 is prohibited to lay on the bed of a woman having sex with her man. Also, Reuben had yet to impregnate his wife. Uh He actually, it is never, he, he is not exclusively criticized later on when he is cursed by his father on his father's deathbed, I'm pretty sure it's on his father's deathbed, he is not condemned for sexual immorality because there wouldn't have been that much of a range of time if this was to be condemned for sexual immorality in that way in this time period, right? That's not what the Torah says. He was condemned for who he was sleeping with when his wife is not pregnant. And we have no reference point to suggest that the concubine ever becomes pregnant from Reuben having sex with her. So from best we can tell, it is non-procreative sex with someone else's partner when your partner has yet to be made pregnant. But what if his partner was pregnant? It wouldn't matter then? Basically, well, so we don't actually have another text. We have plenty of texts like do not covet your neighbor's partner and other things like that. But considering what's happening in this text, and and it says in your father's bed in the Genesis passage, Mishkaveh on its own just simply means the lyings. It's plural, um, so the lying... So to break it down, do not have extramarital intercourse in your wife's bed because she will kick you out of the house and hit you with a shoe. Same rule applies today. It is. (laughs) For most relationships, I should say, not all. Thus saith the word of the Lord, as true today as the day it was written. But in the same article I was reading, actually, the paper goes on to say, too, that we have a very different, you know, looking and understanding of what sexuality is today, obviously. Yeah. But the text was saying, according to this scholar, at least, says that the rights to of a woman to her man's sexuality are always given preference over extramarital, you know, occasional sexual encounters between men. So because of how sexuality was built in this time period, they would have always had a male female marriage going on there would have always been some extramarital things and there wouldn't have been necessarily a 
a taboo around having a man, you know, F buddy. It would have been kind of just a normal thing that wasn't talked about because you still go home to your wife. However, it would be an issue if you were giving that man more of a relationship and more of a preference than your wife at home who you're supposed to be creating a family with. So the condemnation is not fulfilling your marital duties to your woman, not having children with her, and giving more time to your extracurricular men. Your side piece? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But is this true? Is this true in ancient Israel? As far as we know. So we don't have any text from within ancient Israel, within the within like the Israelite world that says this rule. But what we do have are surrounding cultures that would have had a looser idea towards homoeroticism than we have, find portrayed by the church today. Or so even sexual relations outside of your marriage. Oh, absolutely! Like there's plenty of texts yeah. in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. That talk about sex slaves having sex. Slaves. Yeah. Yeah, concubines, right? Yeah. Temple prostitution. Like the like, if you look at that for, Genesis forty nine text, just to throw it out flat, the entire text is around sleeping with your father's side piece, his father's concubine, not his father's wife. So, like, the context at its core in Genesis forty nine is multiple sexual partners. Let's. Sorry, let's kind of swerve back there. Okay, so we were addressing the Hebrew. We got to Mishkaveh. Mishkaveh Isha, which only happens that way once. It happens with Mishkaveh, talking about men in Genesis uh, 49. Uh, the next verse, the next word is Toeva. Toeva, the word, the abomination. <laughs> Before we get to Toeva, actually, can we roll it back and discuss uh, some of the other interpretations of the text that have been used? So, for example, talking about yeah, incestuousness. It's, it's not, I guess I would say, it's not as widely used today as it would have used to been in earlier scholarship. But because of the placement in the chapter of Leviticus where it is, mm, because yeah. of how the... Previous verses were discussing not having sex with your mother, not having sex with your mother's sister, not having sex with your sister. Uh, The lead up to that is all these different kinds of sexual infractions that would have been seen within the family. And then we roll right into Leviticus 18.22. And for that reason, a lot of people have put a heavier weight on that, saying, well, it's probably talking about don't have sex with the man in your family. Can we talk about that, whether that, that interpretation would be correct or founded, or if that's more of a misunderstanding of the text. Hmm, how can I say this? That is not incorrect or unfounded, because the majority of this verse is talking about, like, interfamilial sexual relations. Not always blood relations, because sometimes it's like your wife's sister, you know? Like, right. the, the, the two-thirds of Leviticus 18 is Jerry Springer. And then we... What, what's what is what is weird though? What is really weird is is the verse right before Leviticus eighteen twenty two and the verse right after Leviticus eighteen twenty two, because it fundamentally changes the conversation around what Leviticus eighteen as a whole is supposed to be about. Uh, Leviticus eighteen twenty one, keep on you know no nookie no nookie no nookie no nookie. Uh, Leviticus eighteen twenty one, do not give any of your children as a sacrifice to Mo- to Molech, for you must not profane the name of your God. That's the verse that comes right before Leviticus 18.22. And the verse right after Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus 18.23, don't have sexual relations with animals and defile yourself in that way. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it, 
either for it as a perversion. The only time we ever hear mention of a woman's sexuality outside of whether or not she does or does not have sex on her period. Is this why the freaking right wing always leads straight into bestiality when they're like, we're going to allow gay marriage. What's next? Marrying a dog? Because it's literally next in the Bible. Yeah. yeah it's also just the I didn't make that connection until now. That Actually, it's both the verses we're doing today. It's it's Leviticus 18.22, but it's also Romans 1.26.27, because Romans 1.26.27 says, you know, giving yourself over to the unnatural. Um, and so when you put these two together, you get like this weird slippery slope argument of that... If you allow yourself to enjoy same-sex relations or to like the same sex or whatever, you will eventually become so depraved. Or that is a sign of such depravity that you would also have sex with animals. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> it makes total sense. It, it makes sense, right? It makes perfect sense. Which, again, we're not here to yuck anyone's yum, but animals can't oh, no, consent. I don't know. I think, that in mind. I think I'd yuck that. Let's keep I think that I'd in yuck mind. That. There, but I mean, there, you know, it's a, it's a yeah. paraphilia. Like there, there, there. It's a paraphilia. Like there are I mean, actual neurological conditions happening inside of animals, bestiality. Got it. Like I'm not gonna stop you, but do not come for my dogs. Thank you. But it means you need therapy, not that you should act on it. That's all I'm saying. Um, but uh, it doesn't mean you're broken. It means your your mind is just doing things. Yuck. Um. <laughs> It, I feel the same. I don't want to get into it, but I feel the same way about pedophilia. It is a disease, and you need to get help, and it needs to be That's talked true. about more so people yeah, can openly get help. Would but say yuck. It's still a don't do it situation, also, but yeah, it, it's no. not because you're necessarily evil. You're not evil until you act on it. Oh no, it, I'm not but saying you're evil, but I you need to investigate why. Yuck <laughs> you know, to sleeping with animals, and yuck to adults being attracted to children. But yes, yeah, both of them need help. Come on. Yes. Yes. You know, my grandmother once told me that if you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. And I felt like that was a little bit of a... Was that too whole? Too whole <laughs> Holy. The unholy side of the unholy we tree? Jesus. A hole. Speaking of holes, back to... Okay, I'll work on my mental health uh, recommendations later. I feel terrible about that. <laughs> okay, so, going straight into incest. Don't lie with a man. Don't lie with animals. Yes, going gaily forward into this text instead of straight. Into it's this almost text. as if it's a degeneration, like a a slow de-evolution argument. Okay. Like one thing leads to the next thing leads to the next thing. It's almost how I see the text. I would like to present an alternative approach. Because keep in mind, before they said, don't bang men, they said, don't kill children. So I don't think it's necessarily... Oh, you're right. You're right. Okay. And not just kill children, but a lot of clarification. I mean, even if you look at like laws that are written today, if you, it'll say like do this, and then it'll give all of the caveats that you can imagine and loopholes and everything else. So it's like, and don't do it like this, and also don't do it like that, and like it feels to me like it's more in that vein where it's like don't do this and don't do it any of these ways because I know y'all fucking perverts are gonna try it. Uh, just kidding. You're not. No one's perverts for. Unless we're gonna circle back up to the animals conversation, because maybe. Right. Exactly. The common denominator in all of these verses is the continuation of the people of Israel. That's the common denominator. Yeah. If you have, if, if you, if you have non-procreative sex with someone, if you have sex with a male, if you have sex with an animal, if your wife has sex with an animal. If you kill children, all of those things prevent the multiplication of your people. All right. of them. 
And, and so that's the common denominator of these texts. And if we frame it that way, that makes that makes perfect sense for Judaism because you know matrilineal descent of of like the bloodline of Jewish people, and well, and arguably at some points patrilineal because of population reasons, but mostly matrilineal. So it makes sense why you would protect the bloodline through these Israelite women. Uh, it makes sense why you'd prioritize having Israelite men have sex with Israelite women. That tracks. That makes sense. And framing it in that way also fundamentally fails to apply it effectively to Christianity and fails to apply it effectively to literally any people outside of the Israelites because there is not a coveting or protection of a bloodline in any of these other veins of this faith. That's probably what's happening in this text. Now, it still says it's an abomination to do this thing, so is that timeless? That's the conversation that keeps happening, is like, if it says it's an abomination, what does that mean? Toeva is interesting, because it doesn't always mean this terribly abominable thing. It often can be mm. translated to mean, especially when you find it used in Genesis and Exodus, uh, to talk about something that is culturally inappropriate where we are. And uh, like a, a couple of examples. Um, when Joseph invites his brothers to visit Pharaoh, he says, don't tell them that you're shepherds because it's toeva. And that's interesting. Like, why would it be toeva? Why would it be abominable to be a shepherd? Turns out there, right. were, there was a lot of cultural issues. Uh, there, there was a fundamental different position in Egypt to be a shepherd because there was a lamb deity in the Egyptian pantheon. And so that was more of a priestly role instead of a commoner's role. And so it would be toeva for a commoner who's a foreigner to be a sheep herder, uh, especially considering the Jewish people ate sheep. And it was also toeva to eat with the Egyptians because, um, mm. so is it saying it's always inappropriate to eat with Egyptians? We don't find that said. So over and over again, we find this use of toeva throughout Genesis and Exodus suggesting inappropriate in this time and in this place, which makes sense, makes way more sense for this text, considering at the very beginning of the book, it says, this is how you keep yourself the way you are from Egypt to Canaan. Because for those that maybe don't recall, Canaan is meant to be the promised land where they're going to flourish and, and basically think or believe that they're going to then be living in this place where they're not going to be in turmoil constantly, where they're not going to be getting stomped mm -hmm. out all of the time or exiled or any of these things. They believe they're going to go to the promised land and life's going to be good effectively and so it would make sense to say that like don't do this for the time being because it's not going to help us get to the promised land and then when we get there you know we can kind of regroup and like yeah. set new laws for this place that are appropriate for where we are something that i think gets missed a lot and i am obviously not an expert on ancient judaism but from what i've learned just talking to my jewish friends is that the way that Christianity, especially evangelical Christianity, understands things are in very absolute terms with not a lot of nuance. Um, and Judaism is fundamentally different in that regard, where they are willing to sit with the like, it could have changed, things have evolved. Jewish thinking has evolved over the ages, and they acknowledge Absolutely. those things. Where in Christianity, thinking has evolved, but Christians don't say, like, well, the early church believed this, and now we believe something totally different, and it's evolved for X, Y, or Z. They find ways to sort of do mental gymnastics, and so, like, it makes a lot more sense to me personally, and I think to the group, 
to imagine a group of people that are rooted in this type of thinking and this type of experience saying like we're going to make laws to make sure that we survive because we need to survive and we're going to use strong wording and say that it's an abomination because if people do these other acts we might not survive so we need to explain that this is really really bad Mm -hmm. um but it's not really really bad for the way that people think about it today it's really really bad because they might not have existed past a certain point um if they weren't having procreative sex Right. right. I don't even want to say, like, it's really, really bad. I almost feel like we should change the language to being, like, it's highly not recommended. <laughs> like, in terms yeah, of, like you said, like, really eating with the Egyptians. Like, we really can't recommend this because you're putting yeah. yourself in danger. So, like... Well, like, it's not morally bad where it's, like, you should <laughs> right. do this because it makes you a bad person. It's more like, this is... And we don't. We can say it however. It doesn't have to be bad. I didn't mean to imply that it was morally bad. I definitely don't think that. But, like... In that time frame, being like, we're going to designate this as a crime, because if we don't provide these kind of consequences, again, we might not survive to get us where we need to go. Right, sure. Right. And it's interesting because, keep in mind, just to circle back to where we started, this text is being written down when they are between lands. And how encouraging it must be to tell a story of survival of their people even even telling the struggle part of the story and writing down the struggle part of the story while they are struggling, writing down the survival part of the story while they are surviving. Just to get a little darker for a second, like I think that a lot of young people today, like ourselves, are having this moment where we go, can we have kids anymore? Because we're looking at the world around us. And imagine a story where you can look back and, and say, look how, how we came out of something that was going to end us. And they continued and survived, and here we are. Like, like, if we let that kind of wash over us, this text that we have allowed to be nothing more than a puritanical talking point could be yeah. a message of hope for the future of who we are. I think that there's some beauty to that, especially if we allow it to exist in that way, which is probably not the way you, what people would have expected to hear us say about Leviticus 18, but here it is. Um, so now when people ask your favorite Bible verse, you're going to tell them it's Leviticus 18.22 because it's a hope for the children of the future. Because <laughs> I believe the children are future. Or however that's but Okay, so let's, in summary, let's kind of wrap this one up because we need to move on to Romans 1. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, in summary, stop having sex with your father's concubines and then also don't bring a man into your wife's bed unless she's down Always get consent. Make sure that, you know, your relationship is open. And then don't be a Levite um, in exile and having a gay relationship and you're probably going to be fine. Odds are. <laughs> Jagaz is approved. <laughs> so, okay. And there's, of course, many more resources out there. We'll try to be better at linking to them. I'll, I'll definitely try to include that paper that I was talking about. And I know that both, you know, Andrew and Jessica have tons of resources on that. So we'll... Sweet. We'll leave the rest of the investigation on Leviticus up to the audience out there. But let, let's discuss Romans one twenty six through 27. What is going on with Paul? It's always Paul. <laughs> it is always Paul. So let's, let me read it first so everyone's familiar out there in the world. Romans uh, one twenty six says, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. 
In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. I amen. Discuss. Gay men. <laughs> I'm. This is one obviously that's almost. I don't want to say triggering as a gay male, but like it is. It has its trigger. I probably should have given it a separate a trigger warning because it's going to be the verse that people will come at you with. It is in the Bible, obviously. It's in the New Testament. Yeah, dog. There's a lot of things in the Bible. Yeah, and but there's another profound misunderstanding of what's happening here when we look at it again from a cultural lens. So from yes. a surface level, it may look like Paul is just condemning all so, sex that's not heterosexual as unnatural, right. saying whether you're a lesbian or whether you're gay, you're going to be, you know, about women. No, no, well, this is the only, arguably yeah. the only verse in the entire Bible that addresses women having sex with women. Why don't we start with who is Paul writing to? And who why is was Paul he writing, writing the letter? To? Because he's not usually writing because everything's A OK. Yeah, 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 yeah. Andrew, cover that base. Yeah. So, okay. Romans is an odd book. It is easily the most complicated rhetorical letter that Paul ever wrote. It is also most the only one that we have good evidence to suggest was delivered and spoken by a woman. So that's interesting. Hell yeah. Wanted to say that on the front end. Get it, Phoebe. That's exactly Phoebe. right. Um,. Hey, y'all, next time you visit your grandpa's church, could you remind them that the only named deacon in the Bible was Phoebe? I'd appreciate that. Thank you. That's going to be my entire sermon. I'm just going to go to the church and be like, the only named <laughs> deacon in the Bible was Phoebe. Suck yeah. it. And then leave. So, like, who's this dude named Bill you have up here doing communion? We need a Phoebe. Okay, anyways. In Romans, we find Paul addressing, well, the Roman church, but in two, they have two very clear cultures, and that is Torah observant and non-Torah observant. Those are the two kinds of Christians that are existing in these spaces, whether they are Gentiles that convert to Christianity and decide to start observing the Torah, which is very uncommon in this time, or they are Jews that have converted to Christianity and still observe the Torah, or they're Jews that have converted to Christianity and are no longer observing the Torah, or they're Gentiles who convert to Christianity and do not adopt any Judaic practices and exclusively observe their Christian practices with no Torah at all. So those so much for a okay. uniform first century church, you know? Yeah, exactly. So this letter has Paul, or Phoebe in this case, pivoting between talking to the people who observe the Torah and the people that don't observe the Torah. And in this part of the book, he's addressing the people, he's speaking negatively almost hyperbolically, about the Hellenistic people, about the people that are Gentiles that are converted. So to rabble-rouse and excite and get the Jewish or Torah-observant people on his side. It is a scathing criticism in the beginning to win over the Torah-observant listeners. That's what's happening in Genesis 1. Or, I'm sorry, Romans 1 as a whole. Um, wrong book. Paul just playing politics. Like, if we look at, like, the barter and trade system of today's Congress, I think it's kind of a good analogy for what Paul was doing. Oh, absolutely. He was over here running town to town, using people against each other to try to get more things added to his bill. Basically, he's like, yeah, look at those hookers being, uh pagan-like and still thinking they worship Christ. No, you can do it the right way because you have Jewish law on your side and you can be a good God-honoring Christian. And he's going over here to the Christian Gentiles being like, you don't have to get circumcised. It's all good. Jewish law is whatever. Just come over to our side. <laughs> like, he's just playing so, the fields. 
I do also think it's worth discussing really quickly this sort of general attitude that the Romans had toward sexual relations. Yes. Because that might give us some insight into the Gentile, non-Torah observant people that are converting to Christianity and then how they're sort of going from one lifestyle to another lifestyle. And I mean, there's a lot of syncretism that goes on between religions during this time. Yeah. But I think just leaving religion aside, if we just talked about the Roman attitudes towards sex. Well, what was the Roman attitudes towards sex? From my personal standpoint, I mean, we I, I don't have nearly as much Roman knowledge or, you know, well, kind of... We have, an obsessive fall person, back on. we have an obsessive person on this call right now who so. who is down bad for Roman history, so let's... Um... Real, real bad. Okay, I just want to say before we get... Before I jump into this, I spent literally my entire morning from, like, I don't know, 6 o'clock to 11 creating a um, timeline of the ancient Near East and the early 1st century in my Sheets app. And the reason I couldn't just look up, like, a timeline I had to make it is because I've listed out the powerful empires and put, like, the... I have a spreadsheet with their names on the top and the dates, and then both the names and the dates are frozen, so you can scroll either way and see what you're doing. It's great. Love it. Um, <laughs> this is why I'm in a die single. So, and the Bible scholar. I feel like, like, why don't I just go back to school? Anyway, whatever, we can talk about this some other time, but if y'all want to see the, uh, the timeline, I'll tag you in. I know you're all dying to see it. So the Roman attitudes towards sex are pretty different than the way that we view sex today. And we actually don't see any kind of clear categorization of folks based on who they are attracted to until like the late 1800s. Of course, people existed before this that were attracted to same sex or that were having same sex relationships. There just wasn't this definition of saying like you are defined by the sex of the person or the gender of the person that you're not gender the sex of the person that you are attracted to but in roman times actually it was quite common for men to sleep with other men as we would define them but in the roman world slaves were not were not roman citizens obviously and young men under a certain age were not roman citizens and it was fine for a male adult roman citizen to have sex with a male who was not a Roman citizen. So if they were the slaves or if they were um, young men, these relationships were pretty normal and it was considered more a matter of preference than an actual like sexual orientation. I think that's what I was looking for. There wasn't this same sense of sexual orientation then where it's like, I am straight, I am gay, I am a lesbian, I am pansexual, whatever. It was just... I feel like having sex with this person today. All right, I'm going to do that, and then I'll have sex with that person. And yes, obviously there were still marriages, men and women, because again, the mortality rate was so high back then, and life expectancy was also rather short, that population growth was really important. And so we have to kind of strip away all of these things that have been baked into us that are just like, we have way too many people on this planet and there's literally no way that, the only way we're gonna go extinct is if uh, global warming or like a you know, meteor. But back then, like dying out was a very real fear um, and it was something that they had to be conscious of, especially if you're only living to be, what, 35 at best, that's like a good life for them. And many women and children died in childbirth. So like, they were very conscious of this population need. So anyway, that all being said, 
yeah, it wasn't seen as a weird thing for men to have sex with non-Roman citizens that also happened to have penises. Um, and you'll even see it with some Roman emperors. I think we talked about, was it, um... Nero and, um, well, we, we talked about Nero, Nero and, uh, but Caligula was. And there was a culture of having people as, uh, indentured, or I guess I should just say sex slaves, as sex slaves, slaves yeah. within the Roman culture as well, right? Like, within right, the, yeah. the entire Pice debate. Within the temples, within, within the sacrificial sex, which we'll get into here in a second. But it, it wasn't something that they shied away from and wasn't something, as you said, their identity was wrapped up into. It was just another right. facet of life. Like Yeah. Well, I think the thing that's really important Guys do to... guy things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, it wasn't, it wasn't as big of a deal as we make of it today. And I think it's also important to note that the, the real defining sort of role that sex, that you had in sex, was whether or not you were being penetrated and it didn't actually matter where you were being penetrated. So, like, women, obviously, were being penetrated, and that was the read about that. the weaker role. You read about it? Yeah. yeah. I've heard that happens. Yeah. I don't know. No firsthand <laughs> experience here. But, uh, so, they did, inherently, if you were a woman back then, you were weaker and less important, and therefore... Not a citizen. Nobody Again, cares. And not citizenship a citizen. Right? Women huge. had no rights. So these men that were having sex with non-Roman citizens that were also men were still the ones doing the penetration. And so the bottoms, for lack of you know a better term here, um, or the penetrated, were seen as inherently weaker, morally flexible at a certain point. Like They came to be seen as morally inferior as well. And that actually ties directly into the view on women, that they were weaker, uh, morally, I don't, I'm trying to think of it, they had bad morals, basically, or they're just inherently... Just an inferiority complex. Just Yeah, in, yeah, inherently inferior. Um, and that definitely plays into this idea when we see, like, condemning being the penetrated, especially if it's of an exploitative nature. But I'm going right. to put a pin in that so we can get back to the, the verse in Romans. That's all important to keep in mind in terms of just like where the culture was at in terms of keeping keeping in mind that it wasn't something that was unheard of and it wasn't something that it wasn't even uncommon wasn't mm -hmm. uncommon right yeah. so a lot of people will discuss you know paul's this is something that i'm just gonna like inject my own personal opinion into <laughs> but you know cancel paul he's the worst i mean i still need to make that as a merch shirt but for real get the dude out of here a lot of people would argue that, you know, he's a very sex-adverse, asexual person. And there's been a great argument for the long period of time that maybe he's even further than that. Maybe he did identify as homosexual and had this weird homophobic stance because he was afraid of his own personal uh, need but to be penetrated. Seems the thorn in his side was the penetration that he wanted. But I think even if we're going to make that argument, I think we have to... It's not a clear argument. I wouldn't well, stand no, by but it. Like, no, no, no. But I'm just saying we have to even then say like, okay, so Paul, say Paul did have homosexual tendencies or did want to be penetrated. Like, yeah. It wouldn't be that he was afraid of being labeled a homosexual. That didn't exist. It right. was just more of like a status issue where he would be seen as morally weak, inferior. And I think exactly. he'd have a were very disconnected from this sense of honor mm -hmm. in the Roman world and how much it mattered to folks that you were a Roman citizen or you were not. Like, that was the status symbol. Status and honor mattered so much. 
And if you found yourself wanting to be the bottom, it's more of an issue of status and honor than it is about a thousand percent status in that sexual relationship with you. Yeah. And I'd argue even, and this is again, me just making things up, but I would argue that Paul more than any other person, not any other person, but Paul based on his characteristics is very status obsessed in the first place, more than the common person would be. So I think that would be an even bigger hit to his ego than it would to the common man. Just in the way that he likes to crusade and spread his knowledge and spread his word. He was very obsessed with how he was perceived. Well, especially the way he presents himself to these churches. Like he is constantly, associating his status with whether or not he deserves to be heard that right. that is a constant thing for paul and you know and for people that say that like well as we have these arguments that paul is at the very least advocating for a uh, torah observant sexuality no i don't think he was yeah no, no. <laughs> we, if, if we present the primary sexual like orientation of how God is presenting to in these texts uh, in the uh, Hebrew scriptures, what sex is for, it's for multiplication of people. And the one thing that we find Paul saying about marriage, the loudest and the earliest is don't do it. Yeah. Don't get married. If, if you don't need to, he is fundamentally rejecting and balking at the idea that sex is for the preservation of a bloodline. And yeah. so, if anything, we find Paul opposing that worldview, mostly because his entire mission field is including non-Jews. And, and so he's not going to present a, a, an Old Testament sexuality at any point in right. time because he's not trying to create a new Old Testament world. He's trying to create a fundamentally new thing. And at the and same I mean, time, they weren't talking about the continuation of a culture because Paul was very much of the belief that Jesus was returning soon. Right. So That's there would be no need to say. That's where it's too. like he's way less concerned with perpetuating anything because he thinks like literally any... I think we underestimate that. Like Paul really thought any day now Jesus will be popping his head out of the sky like, all right, it's over. And so to him, I don't think having kids really mattered it wasn't it it reminds me very much of like growing up in this like fundamentalist group where it was like jesus is coming back tomorrow basically so don't worry about doing literally anything except for getting ready for him to come back and i think that's even multiplied even more so when you consider that the apocalyptic jewish worldview at that point was not the way it is today with christians where they think that we're going to be like taken up to heaven and we're going to live there it was very much god coming to earth and transforming his old kingdom into this new kingdom but they were staying here like this was (laughs) this This was was it 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 was just going to be transformed and like i think that's also i won't get into it but that's also what's missed when we talk about like the rapture and all of that but anyway back to the verse i agree with everything you're saying but just because we're running out of time no so let's let's break this down a little bit right so god gave them over to shameful lust even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones so a thing hold the phone jesus wait hold the phone god didn't give them over to it yeah. They gave themselves over, right? No. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Well, that's disrespectful. This is the NIV. God. Wait a minute. He shouldn't have done that if he didn't want them to do that. <laughs> He's always doing things like that, though. I know. God is such a sneaky bastard. So, wait a minute. Uh, women gave themselves over to the unnatural. Does it ever explicitly say these women are having sex with other women? No. Well, yes. No. Yes. No. no. So, here's the thing. 
this is where it gets interesting because I would argue that no, this is still not against lesbianism because it says even their women exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. People will then make the assumption that this must mean that women were having sex with each other, right? Because that's the unnatural thing being discussed. Right. It means non-procreative, but it's also something that means nothing. It could very well mean that they were having sex for a ritualistic purpose, which is more likely the case, being as this is within the context of talking about pagans, or as you said, the Hellenistic groups, having things such as temple sacrifice and it being a sexual sacrifice, one in which they performed orgies or performed uh, performative acts of sex and not procreative ones, as you said. But it could have been anything as such as bestiality. We don't know what this unnatural definition means. It could have also been hearkening back to some of the previous verses towards the Old Testament where they were discussing making idols in the image of man and then performing sexual acts with them, aka dildos. That was seen as an unnatural act and therefore defiling yourself in almost, again, a form of worship. It's using using tools yourself and not creating a relationship, which would Fine, have been frowned I'll do upon. It myself. <laughs> so it, it's not very clear. There's a lot of things that were regarded to as unnatural. The reason why it does say, I guess, the lust in the next verse is where people say that that's obviously proof that it was about lesbianism, because it does say, even though women exchanged right. in the same way, the men also abandoned their natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. So when breaking that part of the verse, it says in the same way, the men also mm -hmm. were inflamed with lust for one another, which would point to women being inflamed with lust for each other. But again, there's a lot of things happening here in terms of men, women, all in a pile, doing the do. But I'd also be interested in knowing the exact, and it might just say exactly the Greek in the same way, but I'm That's what I was going to get to next. lost yes. in translation there. So Paul, in Romans one twenty, he was actually discussing uh, apparently divine nature. And the Greek word there would be theotes. I'm not good at Greek. Don't come for me. So that 120 is also used as a clobber verse for that reason, but not nearly in the same way. But this natural revelation is kind of what's at discussion. Paul's setting up this, like, what is nature versus not? I know I, we were Paul talking a little bit. Of, what does Paul know about nature? Bro, we're talking a little bit about it. We living in, like, a three-tiered universe, so. We, we were talking about this, too. And so there's a scholar by the name of Gagnon who kind of discusses how nature itself only shows a heterosexual view. And it's a very flawed way of thinking, so I don't even know if that's what Paul was getting at, but I could also see that being very true. There's people in 2021 who believe that homosexuality doesn't exist in nature, so why would Paul not think homosexuality exists in nature? It's very likely they only thought there was one way, the natural way, and not. I can see that argument. And also, like, if you had noticed, uh, something Jugasus was really uh, pointing towards was this idea of pagan ritual. And if you're sitting there with your Bible and going, how could you possibly come to that conclusion? Um, it's actually just right there in the text. If you look a couple of verses earlier, it's act what we find is this as the last statement, the last, like, big problem in a litany, a three-part section starting in uh, Leviticus, or not Leviticus, we did that earlier, Romans 1.18. <laughs> And it's talking about how God is, uh, the for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And there's three things that happen in this passage. That they uh, God gives them over to um, their minds, their hearts, and then their passions. 
uh, or their right. lusts. Um, and it says that they um, exchanged God for a lie. It says that they um, exchanged the true God for great craven, uh, graven images of things that slither on the ground and things that have four legs. And then it says it gave them over to the passions of their flesh. And those are the three things that are listed. So all three of those things are, are pagan attacks. It, it, they're attacks on this, like, very... Excess. It's an attack on excess, saying yeah. that there's the natural way to do things, which is, like, get in, get out, do that girl. And then there's the excess, where you're obsessed with having sex, where where you are inflamed for lust, where that's all you do or all you can think about, or that becomes your purpose instead of giving it up to God and wanting to have the family, you're out there just to bone everything that you can see. Yes, yes, that, absolutely. And worshiping other deity would have been a pagan practice. Worshiping idols right. would have been a pagan practice. And having orgies would have been a pagan practice, all associated with the temple. And so yeah. this really sets up this entire letter for Paul as a way to talk about these serious cultural issues that are happening between these two very different cultures existing within one church. And what's really fun is he does a switcheroo here in a second where he says, and you know what's worse? Gossip, cold-heartedness. And, and he just goes right after the, the Torah-observant Christians in this context who are not loving and not kind. And he says, oh, you think all that stuff's bad? Let me tell you the real issue in this church. And that's... And, and so if we think that this is about sex... Paul does a terrible job at making it about sex because he makes a very brief mention. Sex is never mentioned again in the letter. If you're giving a speech and you made an offhand reference to sex at the beginning of the speech and then you don't yeah. address it in your conclusion, you're going to get marked down for it. But Paul doesn't do that. And it's because it was never about sex in the first place. It was about this issue with this other religious culture that has found its way into Christianity. Yeah. And I think... I just want to talk about that for a quick second. Was that during this time, uh, during the first century, syncretism was huge. It, it, like, religions were almost, I don't want to say collapsing in on each other, but kind of in a way, it's like everything is borrowing from everyone else. And when you're taking a group of people, I know not necessarily Paul, but when you're taking this group of people, especially Torah-observant Jews, they are Torah-observant Jews, the entire Torah is about being set apart and like, you know, your own, like God's people and whatever. So you're living in Rome that has recently conquered Greece and has, is holding Greece at like the pinnacle of intellectual elitism and all of this stuff. And not to mention all of the other cultures and lands that it's conquered. And yeah. they're borrowing from all of these other places. I mean, by this time you already had sort of the, um, the Romans, taking the Greek gods and just saying, like, our gods are parallel to them, right? So, like, your deities are the same as our deities. We've just named them different things. And they've picked up practices from each other. And lots of smaller cults are also picking up practices from each other. And so if you have a group of people that are rooting their belief system in the Torah, um, it's going to be much more about being set apart and not giving in to all of these pagan practices, which is effectively exactly what you see in Leviticus. That is so yeah, smart. It's, it's a theme that yeah. keeps on repeating itself. It's saying, do not do as these Canaanites do. It's yeah. then yeah. saying, do not do as these Romans do. It's always about trying to keep yourself away from that part. I mean, and we've seen it inside the 
Jewish religion as well in terms of like the different factions that are set up saying X, Y, and Z. It's all about the differentiation, differentiation, you know what I mean? The differentiation between the groups. Thank you. And we see it today. It's a common theme throughout religion and it's a way of uh, creating an in-group versus an out-group. If you look at like Mormonism, for example, and the word of wisdom, the word of wisdom isn't in the Book of Mormon. It's not anything that's been revealed by Joseph Smith himself. It's more a matter of control for the church, but more importantly, to create an outside group and to keep Mormonism locked down. So Mormons, for example, don't drink caffeine, uh, but specifically hot drinks in the form of tea and coffee. They, I guess, can do soda now. But the reason why they avoid hot drinks or caffeine is because it says hot drinks is again, not because it's any kind of moral law or any kind of like, you should go to hell because you drank coffee. It's strictly about observing a practice that other groups do not. Because within that Christian field, they have to be set apart somehow. And it's about devotion in that act. That's amazing. I fully agree. And, and you know, that really made me think about what Paul is doing here is he is expanding. He's trying to expand the bound set to Gentiles as well, right? Like, that's what's happening here. It's like, like, be good to the Gentiles, welcome in the Gentiles. And what's really odd is a text that was about including other people groups is being used to talk about who is excluded. And that, yeah. is, that is such a fundamental misreading of what Paul's attempt is at this letter. And, and it's creating cohesion, but in the act of creating cohesion, it's kind of also setting apart. Well, that's because most evangelicals today and throughout history, again, have said the Bible is God's inerrant word, um, and there's literally no mistakes or contradictions, which also means that they can't hold tension anywhere. They can't say that, like, Paul may have said this and this in the same paragraph, and it could have meant these two kind of disparate things, or this word could have been used in a different way. For them, they need it all to say one thing. Yeah. So there's, it's like no nuance November all year round. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's a huge issue with why Paul's letters being included in the New Testament in general is problematic for me. Because it was such a very focused and this is for this church, this sect, this town, whatever letter we're looking at and breaking down. It was such a minute piece of time for a very certain type of people. And it wasn't supposed to be expanded to Christianity. In Romans, Paul also discusses about how having long hair is unnatural. And we see throughout many different places in the Bible where it says to cut your hair, you know, and not in an act of disgrace or that it's shameful, but the fact that depending on what time period you're looking at, you'd have different hairstyles actually as part of worship. But Paul comes in here and says, oh, long hair is unnatural in the same way that 10 verses later, he's saying that having sex over lust is unnatural and yeah well, and so for that reason the letters should not be held to as a universal concept they're very specific and i don't know this for sure but i'm just like thinking here whereas like we've translated this word to mean unnatural or against nature or whatever but i do wonder if you're living inside this context of being a jewish person at this time and earlier like natural could have just meant what god has expressed to them not natural in the way that we think of nature 
you know, nowadays. Like, a kind of, like, a different understanding of the word nature. And again, I have no actual basis well, yeah. for that. It's just a thought that it popped mm. into my head where it's like... Well, that's why in the previous verse, in 120, it specifically says divine nature. So that's theotes as, as compared to the actual verse in Romans using nature, which is the word so there's two different arguments there whether that verse that verse is saying almost like the way i understand it at least it's saying nature is in the natural world in romans 126 as compared to romans 120 which is saying there's also the divine nature which is what god would have passed on to them so he's almost arguing for both if you read the full chapter for full chunk but i mean again something that just popped into my head if you're saying the divine nature in that first verse it could very much be Paul saying that they should emulate Christ because Christ was divine. At least at this point, I think Paul was pretty set on the idea that Christ was divine. As far as we know, and I know there's lots of conspiracy theories and all of that, Jesus was a single man who did not get married and have children. Yeah. And if we're talking about the divine nature and we should try and be like Christ and speaking from this viewpoint of apocalypticism where the world's ending next week so everybody get ready for jesus then like yeah it makes actually perfect sense that you would be like can you all just get it together sexually because it really actually doesn't matter if we procreate and also jesus didn't do this and also the world's ending next week so like which i do want to harp on again for all the people out there in the audience for anyone who says Paul brings up time and time again in the New Testament that homosexuality is bad. Well, again, Paul brings up multiple times in the New Testament that sexuality is bad. He does not like straight sex. He does not like gay sex. He does not like solo sex. If we're going to be following Paul's world, we should not get married. We should not be having any sexual relations. We should all be celibate priests. And Y'all will have to all be like David Lattice and do that in November and then talk about it on the internet. Ah! Yeah, there's people in his comment section being like, it's been 47 days since I've masturbated. And he's like, yes, brother. And I'm like, it's been one week since he looked at me. Yeah. It's all anyway, that in my head. Sorry. Sorry, y'all. I ha- oh, God. It's been disturbing me greatly. And I had an opportunity. Do we have any last points to make on that Romans verse? Yeah, bestiality is bad. I know that I said earlier that maybe it's fine. It's not. Okay, the end. I don't want you guys to try to clip that at the end. So I'm saying 100% with certainty, go tell your church right now, Romans 126 is about bestiality, not homosexuality. It's been proven. Jageza spoke. (laughs) And now I feel like we need to like do a mock debate on the, like, what does the Bible say about furries? Um, that's got to be a Patreon episode or something. I, I don't actually want either of you to engage with that necessarily. I just, that's what was in my head. I, I think that we did a pretty good job with Romans. I think we did a pretty good job with Leviticus. Um, now, y'all, um, if you're listening right now to this this section, uh, the we, we know you've heard a lot of words like arsenokoitai and, Mal- and malakoi and all this different stuff. That's not in Romans. Um, that's in other texts in the New Testament. Um, we can address that at a different point in time. Um, but for us, with this, we think you have a pretty good context now for Leviticus and with Romans from from here. And, and we're going to use some arguments in the next episode to talk through why this could be something that you can use to have better conversations with people that want to use these texts to condemn you, which I think we actually hit on a little bit. We'll just tease those out a little bit more in the next episode. Next round, we're going to try to do like a speed round, like bam, bam, bam. I'm just going to run through this really quick. I think we've done our outro enough times. You can find me at Queen of the Heathens on TikTok. You can find Andrew at red underscore sage one. Correct, Andrew? Correct. Yep. 
and Jagazus on TikTok. Uh, we will link the rest of our socials in our show notes as well as some books and hopefully that article. And we hope you learned something from this episode. We hope you found it entertaining. As always, please hit us with any thoughts, questions, comments, concerns, either in the comments or to our email, unholytrinity2021. Thanks for listening. We love you, and we hope that you stick around for the next episode. Like, comment, and subscribe. Hit the alarm. Bye. 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 Bye.